We've paired up with Lisa Blue, a practicing psychologist of 46 years and trial attorney of 44 years, to discuss some of the ways trial judges, especially those dealing with trauma-intensive cases, can improve their techniques and social practices, making the litigation experience more meaningful for jurors and litigants alike. So, how do you tell the difference between a great trial judge and one who needs to work on their social intelligence skills? Let's find out. We'll be interviewing some of the greatest trial judges around who offer tips for improvement and share their secrets. And with that, here's your host, Lisa Blue. Good afternoon, Judge Rosenthal. Thank you so much for doing this interview. It's a pleasure to be talking with you, Lisa, and thank you for the invitation. Judge, as you know, this is a a podcast that I'm sure a lot of judges are going to be interested in listening to about what makes a great trial judge. So I'm very interested in your background. I I know you, but I don't know you as well as I'd like to. So if you don't mind, can you tell us a little bit about where you were born and where you grew up, a little bit about your schooling, and we'll go from there. Sure. Sure. Uh, I was born in Richmond, Indiana, which was where my father, who was an academic, a historian specializing in American history, Civil War and Reconstruction, that was his first teaching job. So I was born in 1952, which is a stunningly long time ago. And um, I came out at the same time as his first book and his first faculty position. And from there, my father had teaching jobs in different parts of the country and moved his growing family with him and ended up with his longest academic home and most durable one being at Rice University. So I was in Houston for my last year of high school, no more than that, went off to college and law school, thinking never to return, but I ended up getting a clerkship with a wonderful Fifth Circuit judge. And during that clerkship year, I met this guy, four houses, four four daughters, a dog and a house later, we're still in Houston. Wonderful. And it's been a very good city for us. Well, and I know you did undergrad and law at University of Chicago. That's so impressive. So I got a good education. You had a great education. I'm fascinated about your dad. If somebody asked you, what was his um, real passion and the knowledge, his expertise, what would you say that was for your dad? His greatest heroes were Abraham Lincoln and Abraham Lincoln's Secretary of State. My dad wrote a book about him and really did believe that those two men saved the nation during the Civil War and was um, very much on the side of the radical Reconstructionists identified strongly with the civil rights movement. And uh, those were his passions. My father was a great believer in American exceptionalism. He really did believe that this country was unique and its commitment to civil liberties and the rule of law was what made it a remarkable place. And he was grateful to the country for the opportunities it gave him, and he passed that on to 
his children and his grandchildren. Wow, what a what a man. And I'm so sorry. I I heard that you just lost your sweet father at age 99. We were lucky to have him for as long as we did. But right. yes. And yes, he was enormously proud of all his children. And he loved the fact that I became a lawyer. And he was even more excited by the fact that I became a judge. And he wow. never tired of hearing stories about some of the cases that I could talk about and reading the opinions that I would share with him. Well, I certainly know that you're a United States District Judge, and I was amazed when I signed on, you told me you are the only female uh, district, a United States Judge in the Houston District, correct? In the Houston Division. In the we Houston. have wonderful, I have wonderful colleagues, male and female, uh, in the southern divisions of this district. But right now, just by the falling of the cards, uh, I am at, temporarily, I think, I hope, the only woman in the Houston division on the district bench. I am confident that that won't last much longer. But I will welcome the company. Right. Well, what I, I love talking to you in that short time as a matter of fact, we're the exact same age. And I love when you said you don't have any any plans on retiring soon. I don't. I don't. I love what I do. That's great. And, and I've been doing it now for over 30 years. And every day there's something new. When I think I have seen it all, I am reminded daily that I have not. Right. Well, I'd love, I'm going to, I'd love to talk to you about your career as a, a federal district judge. But before we do that, can you spend just a minute or two about what you've done uh, prior to becoming a judge? Sure. Uh, you know, everybody who becomes a judge has a story about how they got there. And mine was um, a little bit different from many of them because when I got out of law school, I clerked for a judge and then I went to work for a large law firm, Baker Botts, which was very good to me and became a partner there. And three months after I became a partner, I had my first child and then went on and had another one and then had twins. So your twins are boys or girl or, or two girls? I have four girls, four okay. girls. Yeah. And my oldest daughter was cognitively disabled. And um, between trying to make partner at a big law firm and taking care of this growing family, I did not have any time or bandwidth left for any kind of political involvement. So when I was nominated, nobody in the political world knew me. And you were nominated by a Republican, correct? By Bush one. Okay. And um, I will never forget when I had to be interviewed by Phil Graham in order to be recommended to the White House. And Senator Graham was, of course, a known as a someone who would move from being a Democrat to a Republican and was a fairly conservative Republican. And I interviewed him uh, seven months pregnant with twins. And I was I literally waddled into his office. <laughs> and was hopeful that I could get off the couch, that I 
sat down on to be interviewed. And he did not ask me a single question about whether having this family burden, lovely family burden, would um, interfere with my ability to do the work of a judge. He just assumed it. And I thought that that was, considering we're talking about over 30 years ago, quite a remarkable statement about one of our leaders. He was then the senior senator from Texas. And from there, uh, so before that, I'd been a partner at Baker Botts, doing mostly what people do in big firms, mostly defense work, and uh, thought I really loved it. And then I became a judge, and I knew that I had found what it was that I should be doing. Yeah, tell me more about that when you say you found more about what you should be doing. I, from the first moment that I started working as a judge, even before then, when I would come over, when I'd been nominated and was waiting for confirmation, uh, and I'll come back to that in a minute, I would come and watch judges. I would watch Judge Lake because he was a remarkable example of what a great district judge does. And I would read Judge Fitzwater's opinions from the Northern District of Texas for the same reason. He was a master of judicial temperament and wisdom. And I watched these and other incredibly talented jurists in the Southern District and elsewhere in Texas and thought, I want to be like them. I want to have the same integrity. I want to have the same evenness of temperament. I want to have the same sense of fairness and commitment to justice, ability to make hard decisions. And I have found the challenge of doing all of that to be incredibly absorbing and gratifying. I'm very curious when you said you would go watch um, Judge Lake, correct? Mm -hmm. Yes. That he did, that you thought, wow, I really think that's a great social skill that I want to copy. He had the, not only was he incredibly smart and was well known in the legal community as being a star, but he had the kind of ability to control the courtroom without and be confident in his role as a judge, able to make and willing to make tough decisions without crossing over into any kind of arrogance or rudeness, brusqueness. And that was the talent I wanted to develop. Didn't know if I could. So I was looking for teachers and I found them. And it wasn't just Judge Lake, although he was certainly important, but the other judges in the court were wonderful teachers, every one of them. When you watch these great judges do their their skill sets, what do you think, taking away from that, what do you think are the most important skill sets that a really great judge can possess? Oh, there's a lot of them. And some of them are common to what makes a great lawyer. Kind of a openness 
of mind, a discipline of mind, the ability to cull the important from the unimportant, the ability to, on the judge side more so, rather than advocate for a particular position because you have to, to figure out what's right under the law and on the facts and the equities and the fairness and sometimes even the justice and rule based on that. And it's a great luxury to be able to do what's right. Right. And sometimes you're constrained in what you think is right by the opinion of higher courts that are binding or uh, on you, but you know that's part of the rules that we are operate under. So it's it's been a wonderful way to spend the skills that I learned from great teachers in the practice and from the lawyers that I watch daily and from other judges. Did it become and law clerks? Don't forget law clerks; law they're clerks. pretty vital. Did it become easier for you to have this type of skill set where you could really determine fairness and doing the right thing? Does it get easier or is it a struggle every day? I, I wouldn't call it so much a struggle. It is a challenge every day. And I don't think it gets easier. When um, part of baby judge school is that you go to Washington and you get training and at the end of it, there's a dinner for these new judges at the Supreme Court. And the year I had my, this is years ago, Justice Souter was there and he and I were talking. He told me that it would take three years before I was comfortable in being uncertain. And he was right, he was right. And at the end of, when three years came, I remember that and sort of stepped back. And it, it wasn't that I was no longer uncertain. I was more comfortable with being the person in the courtroom who was likely the least knowledgeable about the case, but the one who had to decide it. Is there, any, that's the is there anything particular that you did in order to get more and more comfortable to develop that skill set? I just worked. I read, I worked, I wrote, I edited. And more than, and I listened to people I respect. The, the hard thing about being on a one judge court is that you have to work to learn from other judges because we don't go watch each other. We don't have the time and it's not our culture usually to go watch each other. And we're busy. So it, I, I try to get around that limit by becoming active in things like the rules committees and the American Law Institute and going around and meeting other judges, sitting on panels, sitting with circuit courts. And all of that has, I think, been enormously helpful to letting me avoid being 
limited by my one judge court position. And that's been, I've made wonderful friends and learned from amazing people by right. doing that. Right. Looking back now, after 30 years, mm -hmm. if you were to go back as a baby judge, what would you say that you're doing now at 30 years later that you would wish you had done when you were a brand new judge? Anything that comes to mind? That's a good question. That's a very good question. I think I would have told myself to listen even more closely than I did. And I would have told myself to worry less about, well, that's worry more about some of the practical consequences of decisions that I was making and to try to be more creative within the limits of precedent and feasibility, more creative about ways that legal problems might be solved or explored. There is a creativity. Creativity. That um, I really cherish as part of the job, but it's a constrained creativity. I guess it's sort of the same way as saying we have a lot of discretion, but we have a lot of fetters on that discretion. Right. Are but you discretion is creative. Are you less afraid of making errors now than when you were younger? No. I am just as afraid of making errors, of missing something in the record, overlooking a case as I was when I was younger. Is there anything that you tell yourself to sort of calm down or to make yourself feel more comfortable with whatever decisions you're making? Uh, no, there's no, I wish there was a mantra that I could recite to make myself uh, more comfortable or less anxious. Right. But I think that the anxiety makes you careful. You know, I was looking at your Wikipedia, which would take about two hours to go through. No, I don't. It's so. amazing thing you've done. But I, uh, if you went back and visually in your mind, you looked at all of your awards and your appointments and the Supreme, what the Supreme Court has given you, which ones have had the most meaning and, and why? I think it's the work I did on the Rules Committee, committees that um, stand out. It was um, working as both the, on the Civil Rules Committee and then chairing that committee and then going on to chair the Standing Rules Committee that is involved with the work of all five committees on appellate rules, evidence rules, bankruptcy rules, uh, civil rules and criminal rules, I learned a huge amount. And I met the most remarkable people and had the opportunity to hear from remarkable lawyers and public interest groups and different parts of the legal community that I never would have otherwise learned about or learned from. And we made some great changes to the federal rules of civil procedure and others. We, uh, during the time that I was chair, we put the rules into plain English. 
without changing their substantive meaning. That took years of effort and it was incredibly rewarding. The um, sort of a service project for the lawyers who were coming up from who were then in high school, who would then be able to read rules in the language that makes sense and isn't trapped in the 1930s, but that kept the same genius of those um, imaginative and visionary people who wrote the rules. Right. And I think we did it. What a great it was. Yeah, it was the, the rules committee service and the people I served with and who came to us with ideas and criticisms and suggestions. That was talk about creativity within the constraints of a, of a carefully defined process and structure. We talked a little bit about um, the most significant case that you feel like you've really had an effect on society or really made a difference in human life. And you were telling me it's still on appeal, so you need to be careful. But um, looking back at 30 years, what one or two cases have you had that you think this is really going to make a difference to, to humans in our society? Well, that's kind of a complicated question, Lisa, because it's like a Sophie's Choice question. Which one of your children do you love the best <laughs> or do you think is the most remarkable? And I do find that even cases that you think on just a plain description of the subject area or the issue uh, would provoke yawns. I remember my law clerks laughing at me when I would go in with one of those cases and say, this is so interesting. And it turns out that if you have to be right, pretty much every case is interesting. The, um, but what you asked me about were the cases that I thought were the most impactful. And I suppose that would be the cases that raise the constitutionality of money bail that are still percolating through the courts. So I can't talk about them in any detail, but I very much had the sense in working on those cases and looking at the history of money bail in England and then here going back to the Magna Carta, I very much had the sense that these were issues at the core of our system. Liberty, giving life to the presumption of innocence. They were, although every case matters very much to the parties who bring them and who are involved in them and the lawyers who represent them, sometimes represent them, sometimes we get a lot of people who represent themselves. It, um, this was a case that went beyond the four corners. Right. Well, God, thank you for, it just takes my breath away how much public service you've done. So thank you. I feel I'm lucky. I do. It's funny when I asked you about what you're most proud of in all your Wikipedia awards, the, the one that really stood out to me is that you got not once, but twice you were named the best trial judge on at least two different occasions. And so for the judges that are watching this, can you please, can you, with specificity, if you can, what are those social skills that you have 
that got you the awards to be the best? I think three things. One is that early on, I developed a system to give prompt attention when problems arose in a case that left untended would simply fester and make the case grind to a halt. So I figured out a way, and lots of other judges do this do this too, of promptly teeing up and resolving discovery disputes and the kinds of disagreements that even talented lawyers de devoted to civility run into from time to time. Whose deposition gets taken first? Where is it going to be taken? What's the scope of what I can ask? What documents can I get? Why do I have to give these up? I mean, those kinds of questions, lawyers want answers to. They don't want to spend weeks briefing, engaging in the motion minuet, and then waiting weeks more for a decision. They need that right away. And if you can give them that attention quickly, efficiently, and be still confident that you are being fair, you have enough information to make a fair and accurate decision. That's a, lawyers appreciate that and it actually helps you as a judge. Your six month list looks a lot better. That was the one thing. The second, I think, is that I have tried very hard not to forget that I was once a lawyer and what it's like to be a lawyer, particularly an associate lawyer. So I, am try, I try to be careful in setting deadlines for briefs or motions or something like that, uh, final pretrial conferences. I try to be careful that I'm not intruding. I'm not going to ruin an associate's Christmas. I don't make them show up for trial on the day right after Thanksgiving. Things like that. I mean, those little things, and they're just little, I think have made me a kinder judge. You and have judges have to be kind. Right. Not to lawyers, to litigants. You have to follow the law. Sometimes you have to be quite... Um, you have to be severe in what you do in imposing sentences or uh, reaching a decision that one side has to lose. That's how this works. So you have to be willing to do that in a firm and clear way, but you also can be kind. You seem to innately have this kindness and gentleness about you. And I wonder, do you have any tips for uh, judges on how to deal with difficult lawyers or lawyers with anger issues? Or you know the lawyers that I'm talking about. And I do. Sadly, I do. Yeah. How do you project yourself? How do you help some of these judges figure out how they want to treat these kinds of lawyers? It depends on the kind of, um, on the type of jerk quality you're presented with. And there are jerks out there, a plenty. And there are different, it, it, it does depend on the jerk, but with some, it's cutting them off at the knees, literally. I'm not going to hear that. Pick another way to argue. With some, it is deflecting. 
I think that's the word they use. Um, with others, it's simply keep talking. You're hanging yourself. I'm going to give you plenty of rope. So you develop a kind of a sense of what's going to be effective and appropriate without unduly prejudicing a client or signaling to a jury, for example, that I really like one side in comparison to the other, or I really dislike one side in comparison to the other. And not, you have to be careful. It's not ever about you. That's great advice. Well, in uh, starting to close the interview down, I, if you were me interviewing the great Judge Rosenthal, is there one or two questions you would ask so I could get really the heart or just really know who you are as a judge? That's a tough one. Uh, sometimes it's interesting, and I did this at Duke with the judges. You and teach, when I teach at Duke, the master's program, which you have. They have a summer program for judges that's just wonderful. And I've been teaching in that for some time. Um, and I had the great good fortune to teach the um, last year's class of baby judges which was wonderful. Uh, part of it is, one question I ask them is, what are you reading? Not for, as part of your job. What are you reading to stay entertained, distracted, to learn more, to get some more insights into people, the world? And I got great answers. So what did that tell you about that person's soul or their personality? It told me that they were committed to staying connected to other people in ways that cases bound by their own facts and the personalities and people and institutions and entities they involve doesn't let you do. When you read fiction, nonfiction, history, biography, novels, mysteries, anything, you get a window into that writer, into those characters, into those people, into another time. And I, I have found that incredibly important to keeping perspective. With Judge Rosenthal, what are you reading? Oh, right now, I just finished a wonderful book, fiction, called The Marriage Portrait, set in 15th century Italy. It was just fabulous. Oh, thank you. And uh, now I'm listening to Stacey Schiff's uh, biography of Samuel Adams. What a man. Just amazing and beautifully written. Right. Well, I think that's so interesting. Any hobbies, passions, Netflix, anything else fun, facts? Because I'd love to know more about that, about you. Uh, there's one other judge in Texas with whom I share a passion that is um, a source of great satisfaction to both of us, baking. 
uh, it's called procrastinating by some or uh, therapy baking by others. But, and I think it's both, but I love to bake. I bake yeast breads, I bake sourdough breads and I bake sweet muffins and cakes and cookies. And it's a source of, it's fun. And my jurors are happy because they get brownies and cookies. And it's um, nourishing people is just with things that you make and create. Totally different than what I do in my day job. And it's, it's probably what I would describe as my hobby, but more like my therapy. And it's, it, it's wonderful. And the other thing I do is walking. I like to walk. Tell me a little more about that. Do you walk every day? How far? Every day. I try to make four miles a day. And I listen to books as I walk, unless I'm walking with friends, which I do often. And it's a great way to stay grounded. Right. Well, that's wonderful. And now I know the hat trick. It's you and Judge Massant love to drink. Right. We do. We do. And we have, remember what they used to say about the bluebell cows? They were the happiest cows in the country. Well, I think that we have the happiest jurors in the country, at least the best bet. Right. Well, I'm, I'm dying to know, as far as the way you conduct jury trials, do you uh, let the lawyers do anything particularly creative, like with voir dire or a little tiny opening statement each morning or letting the jury ask questions, anything like that? I, I like the way I pick a jury and I'm very much um, committed to having a 12 person jury in every civil case, sometimes with the it's a prisoner case in which um, there's pro se litigant and I haven't been able to find a lawyer to represent them, although I tried to do that. Um, why? But why? I, I, why a 12 person jury? Why I you? think it's there are three reasons. One, I think it's a better deliberative process. There's a reason we have 12 people in criminal cases. There's a reason there were 12 people selected to be jurors in hundreds of years ago. It's, it's a critical number. And having 12 rather than six or eight or 10 gives you a better cross-section of about the community. Civil. Civil. Fourth. Okay. And gives you a better cross-section and lessens the likelihood or the risk of a runaway verdict of one juror dominating the others. It just has all sorts of advantages. And I think that at a time when the state of civic education is being widely criticized because it's lacking, the best way we as judges have to show the community why we matter, why courts matter, why juries matter, is and, and what we do is to give them the opportunity to serve as jurors. And in every jury trial I have, I go back and talk to the jurors like many judges do. And they all say, this was wonderful. I had no idea. Not that they wanna do it again anytime soon, <laughs> but cause it's, it's a disruption, but they all left feeling differently about the court system 
than they did when they came in. And the more jurors we can send out as ambassadors for our system of open courts, jury trials, and the fairness that they represent, the better off we are. We don't have any better way to demonstrate why we matter and why it's important to keep the judicial branch, state and federal, independent and functioning, functioning well. Great, anything? So bring them on, 12 people. 12 people, that's your, that's a great- That's my message. Well, let's, as we close this down, um, when you and I are gone, what, how do you want to be remembered or what do you want somebody to say about you that would really be meaningful to you as a human and a judge? She was fair. She may not have always been right and I may not have always agreed, but I always felt treated fairly. That's what I want. That's wonderful. Well, uh, this has been unbelievably magnificent. I'm so grateful to you. And I Pleasure. know it's such a service that judges can, and anybody can get on the internet and really, you know, see your heart and know who you are in a better way. So thank you, Judge Rosenthal. I hope I get to spend more time with you in the future. I hope so too, Lisa. It'd be a pleasure Don't to hang out with you. Do not ever retire. Do not. <laughs> Don't worry. Not. Do not worry. Thank uh, you, Lisa. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful afternoon and hope to see you soon. You as well. Thank you. Thank you. That concludes this episode of What Makes a Great Trial Judge. Part of the Lawyer Minds ecosystem. We hope you'll take some of these trial tips and incorporate them in your everyday practice to improve the litigation process for everyone involved. Please consider subscribing to this podcast and take some time to explore the other content Lawyer Minds has to offer. Your feedback and ideas are always welcome. Thanks for listening and see you next time.